You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. Huacachina, Peru. Anybody? Huacachina, Peru. So uh, uh, if I could have the first picture. It's, uh, it's a resort. It's in, it's in Peru. And uh, when you look at the pictures, it's like, wow, this is quite pretty. Can I see the next one, please? I mean, it's beautiful. You can tell it's just, uh, you know, tranquil and peaceful and, and just uh, except for the boat that was labeled Titanic. Um, that's probably not the one you want to take. But um, uh, other than that, it looks like this is really a pretty cool place to visit and to spend vacation time as well. But then as I learned a little bit more, I realized, huh, what do you notice about that besides the palm trees? The background is just all sand. And then the last picture, that's Huacachina. It's an oasis in the middle of nowhere in Peru. So, you know, when I first looked at it, I was like, wow, this would be a great place to spend a vacation. But as I realized the context of this is like, you know, you probably can do everything that's available to do there in a couple hours. Then what are you going to do with the rest of your day? Um, unless you're really into hiking sand dunes. Um, there's just a lot there. And so I, I kind of came to the conclusion that, for me personally, that this is a really cool place to visit, um, but I certainly wouldn't want to live there. Uh, this is it was limited in there. When, you know, I've, in, as I thought about this, I realized that in the context of our sermon and our series on idolatry, my sense is idolatry is, is a lot like that. That... Uh, Quite often, we think we're doing the right thing, but we're not. I mean, think about this. In the Old Testament, where the, where the, the Israelites and other groups were, were um, guilty of idol worship, they didn't think they were doing wrong. I mean, they thought that they were actually trying to please their God and trying to, to please the deity who they were worshiping. And so in their heart and mind, they were thinking they were doing right. Their, their fault was the fact that they weren't. They were actually worshiping the wrong God. They were worshiping something that actually was a created image and had no value. And so they were deceived. In the, today, in the 21st century, that um, this idea of idol worship or idolatry is that we talk about that in the context of something has become godlike in our life. Whether it's a goal or an aspiration or something that we're looking for, it's... it's it's, it's become godlike. And last week we learned that a God is what we sacrifice for and what we pursue. It is anything we elevate above the pursuit and the priority of the one true God. Anything, anything can become an idol once it becomes a substitute for God in our lives. We also learned last week that idolatry is intolerable to God. He won't put up with it. In fact, uh, in a couple places in Scripture, it carried a death penalty. God very clearly says, if you find someone doing this, put them to death. Unfortunately, we read throughout the scripture that was rarely enforced. And most of the people, even some of the Israelite kings, were guilty of idol worship. At least if they weren't participating, they were allowing for it. There's this natural tendency to diminish the significance of of idolatry or idol worship today simply because we don't kneel before carved images anymore. It's just not something we do. So we tend to put it in this bucket over here. Well, this is what they used to do, but it's not really us. In our modern way of thinking that we tend to associate worship with religion. But when you subtract the religious language, worship is the built-in human reflex to put your hope in something or someone and then chase after it. 
It's what you're pursuing. So the idea, the desire to get ahead in life is a very natural human emotion. You know, you're looking for security, um, looking for provision, just be able to live and function. That's not a bad thing uh, in and of itself. Unless, unless it's driven by greed or materialism. Or sometimes what drives us is the need for someone's approval. We're trying to please someone else. Likewise, to be concerned about loved ones is very normal, isn't it? I mean, that's actually, we can say that's God-like to be, to be concerned about someone. Unless a need to control things causes you to become obsessive about that type of care for, and concern. So again, the, the behavior in and of itself isn't necessarily wrong. It's what's behind it that's driving it. Has that need, has that insecurity, has that become God-like in your pursuit and trying to find it? Last week, we also learned that when it comes to worship, there are no atheists. Everyone worships something, if not someone. Whether we realize it or not, each of us determines our future by who and what we choose to worship. And that's the interesting thing about idolatry, is that we have a choice. We have a choice. Now, in the context of the Bible passage I'm about to read, uh, the Israelites have been in the promised land for about 30 to 40 years. Joshua is still alive. Joshua is the one who led them. Uh, he, Moses led them through the wilderness. When they got to the, uh, to the, to the um, promised land, remember they sent in the spies. Joshua is one that said, hey, let's go take it. The other spies um, said, no, we shouldn't because they were afraid they wandered for 40 years. They're now back in. Moses has died, and Joshua has led the Israelites and been in charge roughly for about 30, 40 years um, under his leadership. Now, um, at this point in time, Joshua's getting old. Um, uh, And we know that throughout his life that the Israelites served God and they worshiped him. But because he's getting old, he knows his days are short. At this point in time, he's probably about 100, um, between 110. We know he dies at 110, um, so we're just not sure exactly where exactly this this next little uh, sequence takes place. But we know it's, it's very much at the end. So he know, Joshua knows his time here is, uh, time left is short. He also knows the tendencies of the Israelites. He knows they're very fickle. They're always, all right, God, what have you done for me lately? The fact that you fed me manna and quail for 40 years, that was cool, but today, where are you? And there was, they had this tendency to forget very quickly um, of their, their relationship with God. So what he does is he calls them all together. And he assembles all the Israelites, and he tells them, and he recounts to them all that God has done, starting with Abraham. Here's what God had done. He brought him all this way and goes through the whole thing about time after time after time after time God had provided for them and, rec- and recounted for them, reminded them of what God has done. And then we get to Joshua 24 and verse 14. <clears throat> so you can follow along here. here. So now the fear, now f- this is Joshua talking. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the goods, I'm sorry, throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household... We will serve the Lord. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, dig a little deeper into this idea of, of idolatry and um, this way of living our lives where we're not putting you first, Father, I pray that uh, you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear, that we would comprehend maybe um, certain corners of our life that, uh, if not uh, idolatry, Lord, they're, um, they're certainly not in pursuit of you. Um, but God, I just ask that you would, in these next few moments, uh, Lord, that your spirit would speak to each of us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So it's interesting um, that what we see in Scripture quite often is where the leader will say, this is what you need to do. This is it. Do it. Joshua says, you got a choice. And he actually lays out what some of the, uh, of the options are. So we're going to take a few minutes here, and we're going to lay out what those options are and what they might look like tonight. Um, what's going to be fun uh, for me, and I think for all of us, is that Kate and I are going to share this time. So Kate's actually going to come up and actually lead us through the first three choices and uh, um, hear what, uh, what that looks like. Oh, he's taller than me. Okay. Sorry, I just moved it. Um, so I just want to mention again that all the things that we're talking about today, um, all the things in our lives that could potentially be idols, they're naturally neutral. They become an idol when we put our passion and our focus on them. And also, what is an idol for me might not be an idol for you. So this isn't like a blanket let me explain to you how to avoid idols and give you the three ways that you shouldn't do these things. Um, that's where, um, you know, growing up, we, I'm sure maybe you, if you grew up in a Christian home like I did, there was, there was a lot of rules that didn't make sense. But because for my family, it was something, you know, for my parents that they were convicted about. And so then they placed the convictions on me, but they didn't make sense. For instance, going to the movies or playing cards, right? And so those might have been conviction for someone, but they're not a conviction for everybody. And that's kind of what it is. So it makes it a little tricky because there's no one size fits all. And we must examine ourselves and figure out what it is. So the first one is, um, the first option he gave is the gods of our fathers and mothers. So how many of us can draw a parallel from where we place priority to where our parents place priority? For me, I think about my um, parents growing up. They placed priority in work and said that that's where your self-worth comes from is your job. How many hours you work a week, how hard you work, how much money you make, that's where your self-worth comes from. And I remember my siblings, uh, my two older siblings both had seasonal jobs. And so... It, during the off season, they wouldn't get another job and they would just like use the unemployment or whatever. And my dad would get so mad at them. And like, I can't believe you guys are so lazy. And he'd just get angry about it. And today, that's still something I think about and I deal with myself where I can put my job, which my job, I have a good job. I do good things, right? I mean, right? I do good things. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I do good things. But if I put my job as my worth, it's not going to take me anywhere. I'm just going to hustle really hard and not be happy at the end of it. And I will sacrifice a lot. I'll sacrifice my family, my future family, my future husband, my future kids. I'll f sacrifice everything for a job. And at the end of the day, the one thing that is supposed to give me worth, that I strive to give me worth, is Jesus and what he did on the cross for me. And so, and I will say, my parents are way different than they were when I was growing up. Um, it's amazing 
like how people grow and change thinking back. I'm like, wow, they're so different. So that's no longer a thing for them either. They've had to work through that. Uh, Earlier in this chapter that we were just talking about, Joshua 24, Joshua talks about the ancestors and how all of these, these forefathers before him come through and and they are carrying the faith. They're carrying the faith that we're supposed to believe in. But if you look back at the forefathers and what they did, not all of them were perfect. And so I just want to pull out two guys individually, that um, father and son, who did something that wasn't that great. And so um, both of them did the same thing over and over. You might know where I'm going with this. But it's Abraham and Isaac. And so Abraham, he's the dad. And as he is um, leaving his homeland and he's going to where God has told him to go, he decides to stay. And so I'm only going to tell you one of the two instances this happened with him. He, start, he decides to stay in the town of, or the kingdom of Gerar. And there the king Abimelech sees his wife and fancies her. And so he decides to take his wife as the king took the wife as his own wife, Sarah as his own wife. And so in it, you see that Abraham lies and says that Sarah is his sister. And so then that's why it makes it okay. And later on, um, Abimelech goes to bed that evening and he has a dream. And in the dream, he realizes that Sarah is actually, in fact, Abraham's husband. And so there's a lot of schools of thought about what's going on and why this happened, why it might be okay and all of that. But the thing I want to pull out is kind of, is the response of the king, the king is ticked about it. He's so mad. And he's like, why did you do this to me? And uh, Abraham essentially says, because I was afraid for my life. And so I knew that if I said this was my sister, you wouldn't kill me. And then he does it. So that was the second time he did it. The first time he did it was right when he left his homeland. And then his, his son does it the next um, in his own generation. And to me, the reason I think that that's happening is because both of them are saving their own skin. And that in itself can be a God, is choosing to save yourself over someone else or choosing to do what is going to help you the most rather than the right thing. And I think we see it play out in both of them. We cannot live long off of the view of others of the world, off of the coattails of someone else's faith. I believe the key takeaway in that story and in the story of my family is a lack of ownership. You see, the law of exposure is the basic premise that our lives are determined by our thoughts, and our thoughts are determined by what we are exposed to. And the path of least resistance is doing what our parents did before you, before us. But if we do not take ownership of our own faith, we will not survive off of the beliefs of our parents. Our stories may begin with following in their footsteps, but to fully flourish, we must take ownership of how we believe and how we interact with God. As a part of my own ownership journey, I have been going to counseling for lots of years. Um, And about year one or two in, I'm talking to my mom about what I'm learning, telling her all of this. And she said something that I haven't been able to let go of, but I really don't think she said it for my sake. I think she said it for her own. She said, I realize a lot of what you and your therapist are talking about is the way your dad and I parented you. And you are undoing a lot of our mistakes. And I'm okay with that. And I think that's the big thing is as parents, we're never going to be perfect in what we do, right? I always think about that as a pastor of children and of youth is I'm never going to say exactly what's perfect, exactly what they need to hear. But what I do know is that 
part of my job is to help them take ownership of their faith, to take ownership of where they're going so that later on they are walking throughout their own faith and not, you know, on my shoulders or on the shoulders of their parents. And I think it's just super important. The next option that we have that we see in, the, um, in this passage is the gods of your past. When someone accepts Jesus as their savior, they are 100% saved. But there still can be gods of the past that, have, that they have to confront. In Joshua 24, it, it's at the end of a long, drawn-out story from the beginning of that... Ugh, sorry began in Egypt. It's a long, drawn-out story that began in Egypt. When the Israelites left Egypt in search of the land God promised them, they took memories of the Egyptian gods with them and continually attempted to turn back to the gods before and rather than the God of their salvation. The Israelites sitting before Joshua on this very day knew the stories of the Egyptian gods and the gods of Israel's collective past of, in Israel. And God is saying to them, choose this day who you will serve. And from this day on, well, for the rest of Israel's known history, this continues to trip them up, the gods of their past. And later we're going to talk about the gods of their neighbors. But their cyclical story circles around the pagan gods around them, but it all started back in Egypt. The gods of our past is a thing that continually trips us up as well. I'm convinced that a lot of our walk with Christ is getting to each new season and discovering how to deal with the things that trips us up again. It comes masked in different ways, but at its core, it's still the same thing. Which, if you realize that for the first time, it's incredibly frustrating. You're like, God, I thought we fixed this last season. Why am I dealing with it again? But that's the... That's like the trick of the enemy. That's the trick of our own brains is, realize, is thinking that we're done and we're fixed. But if we think that, then it gives the enemy a foothold to do more havoc in our lives. Now, granted, I do believe that some people are fully healed, but I wouldn't say that's everybody's story. And it's something that we need to, to walk through each and every new season. And one of the examples that I think of is uh, Peter in the New Testament. I really believe, looking at Peter's story, that his biggest trip up was his need for approval. And so because he was following Jesus, he was making good choices, and he was looking for Jesus' approval. And we can see that when Jesus is walking out on the water, and Peter's like, let me come join you, and he walks out with him. Uh, And then you can see it again when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, and Peter's like, why are you washing my feet? And Jesus explains to him, what it means to be a servant. And then Peter's like, well, if you're going to wash my feet, wash the rest of me. Like, I want to be completely clean. And then um, you see, and I think one of the most biggest moments in his life is when he denies that he knows Jesus. And in each of those times, I think he is trying to find approval. And so that is the root of his issues. That's why he does all those things is because he's looking for approval. For myself, it's loneliness. It's the idea that I'm alone. Now, I know I have a church family that I love dearly, and I think they love me too. I have great family. I have a great community around me. I have all of the things a person needs to not feel lonely, but I don't know how many times I feel incredibly alone. And um, the thing is, is that loneliness, that sense of being alone, is where a lot of the moments when I trip up and I sin and I do something that isn't honoring to God, it starts because I feel alone. And because I know that in each new season I come into, 
pandemic, when I came into the pandemic, I knew that that was going to be an issue. And so I would call all my friends on FaceTime. <laughs> like, I know that we normally talk on the phone or we text, but since I'm not seeing anyone, let's FaceTime. And so I really know that that's something that I need to set boundaries for. And we all have those things. And those are the gods of our past. We cannot survive on the stories of our past. As the Israelites were challenged to do, we must challenge ourselves continually. On this day, who will you serve? Option number three that Joshua mentions is the gods of our culture. As the Israelites settled into the promised land, they were, there were pagan nations who worshiped false gods. And due to proximity, they could easily be influenced to worship these false gods that had shaped the culture. So the question is, due to proximity, what influences us? Unfortunately, proximity for us doesn't just mean physical proximity, right, because of uh, the internet and because of cell phones, it means proximity. Whoever has the loudest voice, right? That could be uh, due to what in our cultural demands our attention. It could be what of that demand could um, actually be demanding your very soul. I I really think it's the idea, do what makes you happy. It sounds good. It sounds positive. And as we follow this train of thought, we may be happy for a season, but that's not where God intended us to be. So I want to break down this statement, do what makes you happy, but I want to start with the end, happy. Happy is a momentary emotion that never seems to fully achieve what we want, which I believe is contentment. And then the word you is not for the common good. It's not making other people happy. It's not making everybody happy or making the community happy. It's making yourself happy. It's a very, it's a very selfish term. And as a typical millennial, I can tell you all the ways this happens in my life. It's by the many selfies that are taken to put on the Instagram so that I can get the likes. And I open it and will look to see how many likes I get. It's wanting to low-key be an influencer, which means that I get a little blue check mark and says that people are watching and listening to what I have to say. It's doing all of those things. And for every generation here, we have that way that is, how can I make myself the happiest? And the do, the last one that I want to want to point out, do what makes you happy, infers that getting to this place of happiness is solely determined by what you do. And that's not true. Especially as a Christian, if we just do and do and do, it's not going to make us happy. It's just going to make us hustle harder and go further. It's, it's combining what we do with where we are, with who we're with, and who God is. And that's what's going to find, where we're going to find that contentment. And so all of these things that do what makes you happy is in direct opposition to what God asks of us. And because we are processing life in a fallen world and in a culture that is oppressed to God, we can easily be influenced or shaped by our culture. But God wants us to live sacrificially, in community, content and full of joy. This happens when we realize that there's more to life than me, which then shows up in every area of your life. There's more to life than the way that dude cut me off. There's more to life 
than how this steak makes me feel. There's more to life than that TV show that I've been binging for days. There's more to life than me and how I feel in this moment. When we realize that, the way it plays out is how we interact with one another, how we serve in the body of Christ, uh, what our bank account looks like. When there's more to life than me, you're no longer the most important person in the conversation. I think of the passage in Romans 12 too. It says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing of the mind is realizing that we are not the main character in the story, that there is more to life than me. There's more to life than us. And so Sam is actually going to come up and deliver our fourth and final option to show us what life is truly all about. Thanks, Kate. She's shorter than me. So Josh was very clear um, about his choice, and he and his family would serve the Lord. And what's interesting then is um, he puts it out there for the people to choose. Who are you going to serve? And he puts it out there as a form of the question. And if you read the story, um, the people respond, we will, and I'm paraphrasing, but they say, we will serve the Lord. They agreed with him. He said, he's brought us to this place. He's done all these things for us. We're going to serve him. Joshua does something really interesting. His response back is, are you sure? He says, really? And he says, because if you choose him today and then turn your back on him later, it's going to go really bad for you. It's going to be really worse. So are you sure that's what you want to do? Are you sure you're choosing God today? And people says, we're sure. We will worship and serve the Lord. And then it says in uh, verse 25 of of chapter 24, it says, on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. So right at that moment, he reaffirmed their covenant relationship with God and of their intent, the people's intent to, to serve the Lord. And it's just shortly thereafter then that we read in the scripture that Joshua does pass away. <clears throat> I keep coming back to this idea that we are all wired for worship. All of us. Even, but again, if, when you put the religious language on it, it, it becomes very exclusive. But if you take away the religious language, you realize worship in the sense of it's what we pursue, it's what we give our life to. All of us are doing that. All of us, even those who claim to be agnostics or atheists. We're all wired for worship. And our choices that we make in life are a strong indication of the gods we're worshiping. So instead of asking what gods might be present in our lives, as Kate said, it's really very subjective how that looks for each one of us. It might be more helpful if we consider the choices that we make on a regular basis. What have I chosen to do for a living? How have I chosen to manage my money? What do I watch on TV or other screens? Who have I chosen for my friends? And how do I choose to spend my free time? Each of these choices reveal a potential God. The question before each of us then is the same as that posed by Joshua. Who will we serve? Will we live off the faith of others and make it our own? Or does our past still control us? Or are we even aware of the cultural influences that are contrary to the kingdom of God? 
all other gods are only a deception and a distraction to keep us from the one true God who is not only for us, but constantly working for our good. That being the case, don't be deceived by the gods of your forefathers, the gods of your past or the gods of the culture. Like Joshua, we need to declare that we are going to follow the one true God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, very thankful uh, for the encouragement and the challenge from Joshua. And uh, Lord, it's, it's always good for us to, to assess and to reevaluate. And Lord, I know from my own life that there's times where I fall into patterns, that uh, sometimes I literally fall into them. It's not a conscious choice, and, but it's something that we kind of, that we fall into. And, uh, but Lord, down the road, we realize how consuming they can be of our life. And uh, so, Lord, the, the fact that we have this opportunity to, to reassess and uh, what some of our choices are and a chance to reassess if this is really the path that we want to be on. Is it really honoring you? So, Lord, I ask and pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts. Lord, may the words that have been shared here this morning be used by you in the days ahead. Maybe as a prompting, maybe as an encouragement, maybe um, as a conviction to change behaviors, to change the way we interact, to change the way we engage you. Uh, Lord, because it's only when we do that can we find true peace and can we find true contentment and can we actually find true long-lasting joy. So Father, help us be aware of misplaced priorities. Help us, Lord God, to be able to um, live a life that is not only pleasing to you, but is one that you can use for your purposes. So Lord, again, we're just very grateful for all these things and trust you, Lord God, with our lives. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.